Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squad's episode 29, continuing our reading of Nagarjuna's Root Verses of the Middle Way. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined by the squad. Today is the full squad of Aura, Kagyu, and Storm King, if y'all want to say hi. Hey, everyone. Hello. Hello. So this, uh, we're, we, we, um, are, as I said, we, we're continuing this uh, discussion of this text, which uh, if you haven't noticed already, and you definitely <laughs> <laughs> notice after today, um, structurally, there's a lot of similarity in the arguments, um, which is not to say that the argument isn't important or that there aren't different nuances or different things that come up. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm thinking it'll be a good chance to sort of talk about some also some general issues in terms of um, Buddhist philosophy and and cosmology and how these how these issues are related. Uh, we also got background baby on background. He wants to let everyone know how profound and important this text really is. But it's true. This is a very this is a very um, this is a very profound text. And and again, just because this argument, it may. I think there's a there's a method really ultimately I would say in um, this the kind of thoroughness <laughs> that he's approaching that he's approaching it with in in just sort of going through you know over and over and over and over again um, and and really there's a there's a kind so the Sanskrit word for meditation uh, and it's a, is is bhavana which is from the root boo which means like which is the root of like it's one of the existence words it means like to be it's actually what related to the etymologically to the english word to be and it, it so the, we translate this word bhavana as meditation and that's not a bad translation but it's really more like a pro, it, it really means more like a process of coming into being or something like that which which uh like most literally etymologically and and from that like more um the, the more common meaning when you just sort of if you were to just encounter this word reading Sanskrit generally it would mean like familiarization or habituation getting used to something and so I guess my point is when getting used to this argument getting used to thinking in this way <laughs> is a kind of a meditation are you meditating <laughs> anyway so uh, yeah I, with that I thought I would open it up to you guys for a, for Something a that I, I like. I think is. Oh, go ahead, man. Well, uh, very briefly, I, I like that way of putting it, DK. And you know, uh, several episodes back, I can't remember which one it was. We uh, we were talking about um, the. I think it was when talking about Evola. Uh, we were talking about how you could read the Pali or Sanskrit sutras as a sort of meditation too. That there's the content that's important. Uh, there's the historical contexts that are important um but then there's also just the actual act of reading it um and i i find that definitely to be true with this with this as well and um something i've been trying to do both on this podcast and just when i'm reading on my own is reading through with the commentary and getting the general gist and then going back and just reading the verse all by itself in translation of course um and it, it has a nice sort of poetic flow on it but go ahead sir Oh, um, one of the things that's so profound to me about this text is that, like, I think if you're a Westerner just going through your life, even if you're pretty inclined to, like, be a philosophical person or a philosophically curious person who, who doesn't take things for granted, the whole fact of emptiness and, and how it works and how it interacts with properties and causality and movement and time and all that is something that you would never... I don't think it's very likely that you would think of it. I think the emptiness doctrine is super unique and and it really only kind of shows up in this one place in this one world tradition of buddhism so it's it's that's one of the things that makes it so profound and one of the things that makes buddhism so profound in general but uh yeah actually also, the the, the word yeah. that the, the, a lot of other traditions use to refer to buddhism is like shunyavada like the the people with the view of emptiness that that's very close like that's how Hindus in India would refer to Buddhism not infrequently. If you look at like uh, Adi Shankara, that's what he refers to them as, I believe. Very cool. I did not know that. And and to speak on the the, the meditative reading aspect, for me, I find it meditative because it's the verses are cryptic. If you don't read the, um, they're they're sort of cryptic enough if you don't read the commentary that you can get the gist of it. Uh, and they're and they're not cryptic enough to where it, or they're clear enough to where it sinks in. So you're getting this like mysterious feeling from it at the same time as like intuitively understanding it, but not necessarily 
uh, rationally understanding it completely, and it just kind of gets past that ego filter and kind of sinks into you, especially if you don't read the commentary. So, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Are y'all ready to? It might be a little. Yeah, it might be a little premature, but um, when we get to it, because I think uh, the chapter eleven here is about. Um, gosh, I have to even pull up that text. Excuse me. Chapter twelve is about. Um, I'm going to get this backwards. The skandhas, more or less. Am I getting that right? Yeah, chapter twelve is about the skandhas uh, as an analysis of suffering, and chapter eleven is. Um, about samsara, about the, you know, the, the question of the ending and the beginning of samsara and prior rebirths and everything. When we get to that chapter 12, I actually have a question about, for you Mahayanists, about the usefulness of, of these questions about emptiness. Um, so that's my teaser, teaser for you guys. But yeah, let's jump into it. Okay, so basically chapter 11 is, is based on, it, it's responding to an opponent who is trying to reify essentially birth, aging, and death, so as to kind of uh, forever ground the, the Buddhist view in reality. And so the responses and the questions are like, you know, so what happens if we try and say that birth, aging, and death are specific determinate states that they have an essence, they are a certain thing, and that they're at a certain place in time, and they're either uh, they uh, cause and have certain causes. So, so basically, what happens to us if we reify birth, aging, and death? Anybody want to have a comment or anything on that before I jump right in? Because I've got some interesting notes on this. I think I want to no. hear your notes. For yeah, sure. go for um, it. But I, I or no, sorry. Okay, Aura. Yeah, if you had something you wanted to say first. Well, I was going to say. Uh, I, I think that it's worthwhile to also take this opportunity, we can do it after your notes, to just talk about the notion of samsara in general, because we talk about it a lot, and it's a pretty basic concept. Most of our people listening who are interested in Buddhism probably have some concept of it, but maybe people are curious to hear us. That is a great point, actually, because, yeah, and, and there's some common misconceptions, too, that we could talk about, but did you, you, you want to address that first? Yeah, I'll just... No, uh, I'll just... Yeah, I want Storm to go because I need to gather my thoughts on that. <laughs> I suggested it, and then I realized I don't yes. know what to say. <laughs> I had a okay, thought about so... uh, Well, I'd like to hear Storm's notes before I jump into it, but I definitely had some comments about the implications of samsara and what's being said in this chapter. Well, I'll do that real quick, and then we can jump right into to those questions because they're super interesting and relevant. Um, so at the beginning, we see what's being discussed is the Buddha not answering certain questions about beginning some certain cosmological questions right so so why why might that be in the framework of of uh emptiness here it's because nothing coherent can really be said about the origin of the world since beginnings and ends and for that matter middles are things that are um, that apply to actual real self-existent entities um, if there's no essence to something as in if there's not something that is in itself a thing then it can't really be said to have begun, right? So I can take uh, fuel and, and a match and some firewood and I can light it and I'll have created a fire. So conventionally speaking, because of the way, you know, we labeled this fire and this fuel and, and, and this stuff, etc., it makes sense conventionally at just as a means of understanding and talking to say that, oh, the fire started at this time, but there's no single entity that is the fire. The fire is is empty of fire. There's no thing that is in itself fire. You can't um, reduce the fire down to a single thing that has as its essence to be fire. So if there's no thing, then there's no beginning and there's no end. If there's no beginning and there's no end, there's also no middle. Uh, because the middle relies for its coherency as a word on the concept of a beginning and an end. So that to me would be the kind of Madhyamaka reason for the Buddha not answering that question about the beginning of the cycle of existence. Um, and I'll keep going a little bit deeper into this chapter in the next couple of verses. Um, you know, how do I want to say this? So one way to think about samsara is this endless cycle of things coming together and going apart. Um, you know, anything that's created 
because anything we're calling a thing is going to be compounded. It's composed of parts, and there's no central essence that has, quote-unquote, has or is those parts. They come from, they used to be something else, right? So there's no boundary between, um, there's no definite, determinate boundary between the seed in the ground and the germinated seed and the tree and the table and the old broken table in the junkyard and and the the legs of the table being used as firewood and the fire and the ashes and the soil and the new seed that falls in the soil and takes those nutrients and grows this is that's kind of what samsara is quote unquote really like and that's kind of the point of this chapter there's this uh you know every birth before it there was an aging and a death every birth after it there is an aging and a death so if we if we try and say these things, you know, if we've already given up, in which we have, the idea of self essences, we've already found this to be extremely incoherent. Then then why are we talking about definite states that happen to these lack of self essence things? It's it's sort of like you know you have this thing called birth and you want to pin it down, but there's nothing to pin it to. So that's what he's dealing with in, in this chapter, right? This is a response to someone who's who's trying to pin Samsara down. But you, but you can't. There's nothing to pin it to, right? It's more of a conventional explanation. So that that was my like basic take on this chapter. If you guys got questions about, or if anybody wants to hear anything from the chat about a specific verse, I could talk about that too. But that's sort of what I see is going on here. Well, I think the first thing to say is that the the word. Um, I'll be right back. That's all right, bud. Uh, so the the thing about samsara as as it's addressed in this chapter is. The question about the beginning and and so storm that's a really good um you know the the earlier verses we were talking about fires we we're talking about seeds being planted we were talking about go or the goer going and everything so he takes that same idea in this chapter and expands it out to the entire wheel of of rebirth of becoming and aging and dying and and all of that right and one of the sort of classical things that gets addressed and not addressed or or, or brought up in buddhism is was there a beginning to this cycle of birth? So if the Buddha lived, you know, if we all lived many, many, many past births, was there a birth that was first? Um, and it, DK is right to point out a couple episodes ago that that actually the part where the Buddha refused to answer this question is kind of in one famous text. In other places, he does sort of address it. But the basic answer is that the the Buddha himself, at least as described in this exegesis in this in the Siddharat's translation is that the, the Buddha himself said that there is no way to discern the beginning of the cycle of, of birth and death. <clears throat> so you could take that to mean there literally isn't a beginning to it or simply that it's so far back that it, it cannot be seen, which functionally, I guess, is sort of the same thing. Um, and then, then there's the question of, well, is there an end to it? Now, conventionally, we'd say that in with the release of nirvana there is a, an end to that for an awakened one but the question is is the cycle still going when you know if the buddha is awakened but the rest of us are still in samsara we could say well the samsara has no end in that sense and what nagarjuna points out in this chapter in the earlier verses in this chapter is that how can there be a middle uh, to something without a beginning and end, because at any point that you you take on it is it's infinite in both directions, right? And so you sort of simultaneously always in the middle and never in the middle. And uh, this, you know, it's always hard to talk about these things. When we talk about infinite series because it's, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around it. But the point that of Nagarjuna here is that conventionally we do sort of think it. Well, I'm in the I'm in the you know I'm in this life and it had this beginning and this end and there was the one life before it and there will be the one life after it and it sort of goes out from this cycle and that's just a like you said a, a convention which we can use to speak conventionally but to the degree that that's reified in your mind as this is the actual state of affairs that I have to deal with you're making like a fundamental mistake an understandable mistake a mistake that's you know deserves a lot of sympathy and everything and um you know that's why the teachers teach on these topics but nevertheless a fundamental mistake if you're looking at at things that way i would say that is exactly right something that's kind of cool about this is is when you're thinking kind of like like i think of time as being um i don't i don't know the math words for this but you know, when you when you try and pin down an object, what you're doing is like, like taking something out of the web of dependent, um, the web of dependent arising, or, or the the uh, uh, codependent like reality of everything being empty of itself and depending on 
uh, everything else for its existence. You're sort of like arbitrarily picking something out of an infinite continuum and just going that. But with time, when you do that with a moment, it's like the same, you're doing the same thing when you're conventionalizing an object or when you're conventionalizing a moment. Like what we're always doing is is picking something out of this huge continuum. Well, yeah, I mean, with um, especially with time, because time itself is functionally defined by the relative motion of two objects. And without that relative motion, you can't even define time at all. Like if nothing was moving, the idea of time is completely infun completely meaningless. Yeah, it's almost as if like time is, is is basically the perception of change. Yep. And I mean, so oh, Kagi, you had a question. Yeah, you were going to say actually, something about I mean, all this. With, with um, just kind of the implications of samsara. I mean, the idea that it has no beginning is is understandable enough, since especially that has like some common. Uh, it's fairly common to a lot of traditions, like the idea of like say like certain things being beginningless, I mean, like Parmenides' ideas on being, or the, the idea of God in, in say, scholastic theology. Mm. Um, the idea of it, it having no end, though, seems kind of variable, depending on which tradition of Buddhism you're looking at, though. Like, the typical Mahayana view I'm familiar with is that all living beings eventually are going to be awakened, and so that's could be seen as the end of samsara, and I guess Sideritz's commentary compares that to a, a sort of like a number line of negative numbers, where going downwards it's functionally infinite uh, there's an infinite number of negative numbers but upwards the series ends with negative one I guess with Theravada though I'm, my understanding is it's a lot more ambiguous like um, as far as whether there's an end to samsara for all living beings since like the reading Evola takes from the Pali Canon and I mean we've had criticisms before of his reading but it seems to be He's more or less unambiguously stating that 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 there are living beings who are not going to be awakened, or that there's no end for that. Um, and so, when I guess looking at that's the first kind of point, and I'm just kind of unclear about whether about how we would define well, like I the think endlessness of samsara. Part of the question comes from what is the nature of awakening, right? Because yes, when. When the Buddha reached awakening, he reached nirvana, but didn't enter pari nirvana yet, right? So he, he, there was this whole forty-five year period that he walked around India teaching after he, after he'd broken the wheel of samsara. So what was that, right? Like what was you know he was still like, you know, accepting alms and eating and breathing and walking around using his muscles and stuff. So like, uh, and yet he was fully awakened and everything. So when the Buddha achieve and i don't have an answer for this and maybe this is kind of a facile way to put it but when the buddha achieved nirvana what happened to that wheel of samsara that he was a part of it it obviously it kept going from a certain respect but I from think, the enlightened I mind of what, the buddha one it of the comparison you know, it's actually i mean because i'm reading this alongside a commentary by kenpo tiltram gamso uh, called the son of wisdom and it i mean the the um the uh the comparison between samsara and a dream, it almost would be like once you are aware you're dreaming, but you're not yet really woken up completely, I guess could be yeah. kind of likened to the situation of I think, nirvana, but not yet in paranirvana. I think these questions are coming out of um, kind of a subtle reification of samsara. The yes. samsara is about the cycle of, of birth and death. Um, but there's no individual. I mean, there's no, there's nothing that's born or that dies. There's no individual thing. So, you know, right. samsara is a convention for you to for you to make use of to understand why you're why you're suffering, um, why you have dukkha. So, you know, just uh, stop doing that, and you'll be in nirvana. The, the the thing about the 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 Buddha being in nirvana and parinirvana is a, it's it. It is connected to this issue of samsara. It, it's it's particularly connected to the issue of karma and klesha, which the um, you know karma everybody knows klesha is defilement, which is the the root cause of um, it's the it's essentially the root cause of suffering, and in the second noble truth. And the the idea there is basically the our our aggregates, our our, our physical aggregate of our body and our the various kind of psychophysical or, or mental aggregates of our minds um, are the result of defilement, essentially. So when the Buddha attained nirvana, there's nothing missing from that. It was um, it was basically that that his aggregates had been completely purified 
but there was it, it in a sense there was still some kind of causal continuity he 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 had attained a state that was beyond any kind of causal conditioning but there was still a kind of residual causal power to those aggregates um but then as soon as like that's why you say the buddha didn't die because in order and this connects directly to the argument here because obviously in order like dying is something that happens to beings who were born right like you, you can only die if you are essentially still caught in this cycle but the buddha couldn't die because he was no longer in the cycle because dying means being part of this process of, of rebirth so so when when the residual causal um whatever momentum of that ag of those aggregates had been exhausted um typically it sort of said you know he like it's some something in the nature of enlightenment that like you don't you can live arbitrarily long but 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 essentially in order to demonstrate impermanence um the the fact that like beings who haven't reached that state yet do have to die um so then you you move on um and so that is and that's why it is sort of like the understanding is basically when the buddha when there was that moment of mahaparinirvana um then essentially his aggregates just disappeared because there was nothing sustaining them like normally for people who die obviously their body is still there <laughs> because there's still a a causal continuity but that's no longer the case for the buddha he's no longer generating karma exactly exactly um, but again, there's this issue, there's this question of like, what, what does it really mean to die? I mean, that, that's what, one of the things going on in the background here is like when, when Nagarjuna is saying like, well, how could, how could a being that be born that hasn't died, right? It's because it's all part of this same, um, process. Now, when we're talking about samsara and, you know, cyclic existence, it, yes, it gets a little bit like ultimately, Ultimately, one way of thinking about ignorance, this kind of ignorance that's responsible for our, our suffering, our situation, is, is this, this idea that we have this kind of implicit idea of, of self-identification, of thinking that there's this kind of, some kind of hard barrier between us and the world or between ourselves and others. Not to say that we all like dissolve into this cosmic goo or something, but it is to say that that, that, that sense of identifying with your own self, your own perception your own mental stream is it is, is is an illusion that is like really the heart of the illusion and so for a buddha or an enlightened being or a bodhisattva in a moment you know of of supreme insight to no longer have that is that's like what what it means to have that insight into the nature of reality to tata or emptiness or whatever you want to call it it's precisely for that kind of hard line to to no longer really be there not in the same way that it used to be at least that's my my read on it i would i mean i would agree i might go a little farther and say it's 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 um the two sides of that are exactly the same nothing changes things are as they are uh it's just do you have mental defilements or not and even those mental defilements uh aren't really defilements <laughs> they're only defilements in the conventional context of the tradition if you understand what i'm saying like when you um you know let's Another example of that type of thing, like if if you're looking at an illusion, you know, if somebody performs an illusion, okay, it was a real illusion. It wasn't not there and not there. It was just an illusion, right? Plain. It was it was real. It was phenomenal. It happened. In that same way, your mental defilements are still part of the Buddha nature. Your your do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? It's it's all it's ordinary mind. It's all already there. And I don't know how much that that's going to be accepted from like a Tibetan or Sanskrit point of view well it depends in time no so what you just described is is very like there's essentially there's two kind of big picture ways of looking at this from a from a indian and tibetan kind of way the the one way is basically almost exactly as you described which is that you know the um there's no real change because what would there be what would it mean for there to be something to change it, that doesn't make any sense um, and, and, but th this often gets glossed. I'm not sure it's, it's, it's an interesting question to me in the East Asian tradition, like what that looks like, because in the, in the South Asian tradition, that kind of a framework, typically like the way, w w what that ends up, like the cash value of that is, you know, emptiness meditation is like, 
there's no, there's no there's nothing flashy about it there's nothing it's, it's very much an emphasis on like ordinariness um which is not to say there aren't kind of other things going on too but it, it's it's really like you shouldn't expect anything to change necessarily and you you shouldn't um you don't like there, there, there's it's it's very it's emphasizing this kind of ordinariness of of the of what's what's happening because because that's just how things are um, the the other side of it, which it's it's not a completely different thing, um, but it is kind of a difference in emphasis, is to say like yes, that's all true, but when what you, but we can but we can maybe like talk about it a little bit more descriptively, or we can um, say a little bit more about it specifically like in a in a tantric context. This often, um, and I think I can. This is not a problem for me to say because this is very kind of general terminology. What gets called the, the 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 union of either emptiness and luminosity or emptiness and bliss in a, in a tantric context. The idea being that like the, that the 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 nature of the the experience of a Buddha, which is what kind of um, the the tantric path is all about, is is sort of take like that's all because precisely because that's just the nature of how things are anyway. That we can use it and access it and and take it as as the path. And so because yes. because the um, because Buddhahood is like a, this insanely blissful experience. It's like the most like blissed out experience you could ever possibly imagine. Um, like that is sort of built into the nature of the mind essentially so so that that you're not fabricating anything you're not making anything but that's already kind of built into this uh when, when you're when you're in this kind of a meditative state or if you can even call it meditation anymore often it gets called like non-meditation but you can descriptively talk about it in that in that way um and and so then there's this kind of back and forth about like you know because the the first people would say that the second people are like you're essentializing you're reifying you're saying that this thing ultimately exists but then the second people would say well like well, if you say that the ultimate truth doesn't like isn't ultimately real then you're saying there is no ultimate truth and and that's wrong too you know and and it kind of, i would just say it's it's really a matter of perspective like that it's one of these things where you know it, it, at a certain point it just becomes masturbatory and it doesn't really matter but but yeah from a strict quote-unquote strict like Midyamaka perspective it tends to be more like the former of, of just saying like any anytime you're trying to talk about anything or say anything you've you've already sort of made a mistake and that's kind that, of true that's that's why i see this as being like the the main current in mahayana that like gave birth to zen later on um is precisely because of that thing because another big tension is how do you uh how do you square these description of descriptions of ordinary mind and and you know already being buddha or whatever with these fantastical like ultimate bliss telepathic powers um dancing angels kind of descriptions of enlightenment how do you how do you make those two things work together right how how are they the same i would tend to say that it's you know taking a step through the gate into seeing into yourself nature and attaining enlightenment isn't the same thing as like Anatara Samyak Sambodhi, right? There's work to be done after you step through the gateless gate, right? It's not just, you understand what I'm saying? Like you can still cultivate all these different powers and, and stuff like that. Well, yeah. So, the, I mean, the the way this gets, and this actually, this is why I guess, I mean, there's a lot I, I could say and I don't want to um, just keep going. But the, the the first thing to say is there's a difference in, in – um, like terminologically we could say like in, in the Tibetan thing you would say there's a difference between recognizing and realizing like recognizing is is when you know you're, you you've accumulated enough um, merit you've done enough sort of generous generous deeds and, and and you've behaved appropriately and you've also you know maybe done some studying and, and sort of have a certain kind of conceptual understanding so then you go to your teacher or a teacher and you say pretty please please you know can you um, can you show me directly like the nature of my mind or the nature of reality or whatever? And, um, you know, if you, if you're fortunate enough, then your, your teacher or whoever will be like, sure. And they'll, and they'll say or do something or it's not really, it's not, obviously it's not, it's not like there's a magic formula, magic spell that they say or something. It's not quite like that. Um, but then you have this moment of insight and this moment of insight is like, there's, you know, that there's nothing else beyond that, that, that is the thing. But just because there has been this moment of insight, that doesn't mean you're suddenly, I mean, you, you, okay, you've always, you've never not been Buddha, but but that doesn't mean that you've actually like realized it's come to be the the kind of sole feature of your experience. Um, there's obviously still a lot of other things going on. So that 
insight needs to be cultivated. It needs to be, you need to be habituated to it. Like I was talking about before in that sense of meditation needs to become intimately familiar. And, and that essentially is the process. Sorry. I said that. I think he was just agreeing with you. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, No, that, that is the, like, that is the, the kind of, um, in, in certain corners of Tibet world, that that's sort of the model is you, you and, and that what that what that gets called um, not infrequently is taking the ground as um, as the as the path or taking the result as the path, because the ground and the result are the same thing. That's the, the point here is that like the, the ground of samsara, like the, the ground of samsara is sorry. Yes, that's not the same thing as the as pointing out instruction is it that's what i was talking about before is like the pointing out instruction is when when your teacher would like you know induce somehow this kind of a a moment of insight but the but the point is that like you know uh, and we're kind of getting but it's fine i mean there's these multiple overlapping layers or or accounts of buddhist cosmology because like yes on the one hand you could look at it as samsara is this cycle of beginningless and endless violence essentially it's 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 just you know, there was no there was no point at which the multiverse began. There is no point exactly at which it ends. Uh, sometimes this is formulated as you know, each individual sentient being will eventually, on a long enough timeline, attain Buddhahood. But there will always be sentient beings, so there will always be samsara. Uh, and in a sense, you could you know another way of thinking about that is just it's above our pay grade. Like that that's the, that's the you know these kind of questions famously the buddha sort of declined to answer we were talking about this a little in the stephen bachelor episode but but more so it's just like the, the, whatever answer there is or could be wouldn't even make sense until you've reached a level of insight at which it, it it's no longer like a question that makes sense in the kind of way like why are you even asking this or how are you coming at it from but the point is that like from one perspective samsara is this beginning and this an endless cycle of of violence and and terribleness on the other on the other hand you know, its nature is empty. Its nature is, um, you know, the nature, our nature, as every sentient being's nature, is 100% pure, luminous. You know, full of all these amazing Buddha qualities. We just, we just. You know, have it's all like these- it's like um, you could think of form being the same thing as samsara, and emptiness yeah. being yes. like analogous to enlightenment and yes. then you can read the heart sutra and then yes. that's boom there we are that's exactly right, right. yeah like form yeah. exactly so you say form is emptiness emptiness is form it's like samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara these are not this is actually what i think this is kind of a sneak preview but that's one of the places where nagarjuna ends up going in this very text you know we, as we continue reading along slowly is eventually he will get to a point where he says, you know, somebody saying like, well, everything you're talking about, emptiness, all this stuff. I mean, what about what about Nirvana? What about Samsara? What about like how how do we like what are you what are you saying, man? And he's like, your idea that you have of you know Samsara is this terrible thing that's over here, and Nirvana is this awesome thing that's over there. Like that is what's keeping you down. That's what's keeping you stuck. That is that is a problem that you have that you are not recognizing. Um, so yeah, like you could say that, that, you know, it's, it's not that Nirvana and Samsara are just these, are these completely different things. And, and what that means in the kind of cash value is, is that the, the ground of Samsara, the kind of true nature, once you get past all the bullshit or what appears to be from a certain kind of limited perspective, what appears to be bullshit is this absolutely pure, perfect luminosity. And, and that's our nature. And that's the, that's the ground. And that's sort of what on a, on a kind of more advanced path that I probably shouldn't be talking about too much here is um that's sort of like the it's like a it's like a it's like a hack it's you know something that you tap into in order to to skip um skip ahead so that would be in tibetan that would be like zogchen right so yeah that's like or mahamudra yeah. the the kind of very uh-huh. they're very similar yeah okay so while we have time let's talk about the next chapter chapter 12 which is much more simple there's nothing in chapter 12 that's not in several other chapters right yeah and the thing that happens in chapter 12 is that the opponent is trying to reify suffering to make sure that um that that we'll always be able to have buddhism because there'll always be suffering right in a sense right so the question is what happens if we reify suffering well what happens is the same thing that happens when you reify anything right if you reify suffering you separate it from the sufferer what sense can you call someone a sufferer if he doesn't have, if he has no suffering, right? Suffering can't be caused by itself uh, because if it's already there to cause itself, why do you need two sufferings, right? If it's, it's already there, why, why cause a second suffering, right? So that doesn't make sense. 
Um, and, it, and we end up very surprisingly at, oh, well, suffering is a conventional designation for a part of our experience called dukkha, right? There's no need to reify it, right? And if you reify suffering, that's giving it an essence. If you give it an essence, that means it can never be destroyed. That means you have totally invalidated the entire project of Buddhism, right? If you reify suffering, it can't ever go away. It inherently is what it is, right? Uh, if it could go away, that would mean it didn't have an essence. That would mean it's empty. So there, there, it's a very silly move by the imagined opponent to try and reify suffering. And that is essentially uh, what goes on in this chapter. We also, in this chapter, we have an echo of chapter one where the opponent's like, well, what if it causes itself? What if suffering causes itself? Well, that doesn't make sense. It can't be caused at all because that means it doesn't have an essence. It can't be caused by itself because that's an infinite regress and it's incoherent. Well, what if my suffering is caused by someone else? Well, if it's caused by someone else, in what sense is it yours? Well, what if I always cause my own suffering? Again, if it's caused, it doesn't have an essence. So that's like the explainer of this chapter. So maybe we can use that to just talk about suffering in general. <laughs> well, bef say? before we go into a general discussion, I, I did have one sort of... I think yeah. to me the kind of most interesting aspect of the argument here is in verse four when he says if suffering is made by persons themselves then who is that person without suffering by whom suffering is self-made so in other words like again maybe you can think of it as a language game but the, you know it, 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 the response is always is you know who's really playing the language game here who's actually sort of separating things out that aren't actually able to be separated the point is if you say like okay well you know, uh, I, if you want to say that I am creating suffering yeah, for myself or for someone else, whatever, what, what that in, implies is, okay, so I'm creating suffering for myself. It is my own actions, right, that are creating my own suffering as a result of my own negative actions. Now, from a kind of general perspective, that's true, and it's important not to lose sight of that. At the same time, look at what's going on here because then what you're saying is there's like a there's a me that doesn't yet have the suffering or doesn't have the suffering or maybe doesn't even suffer who is doing this action that has this effect this is a result right which is the creation of this thing that is the suf the suffering that this suffering is then at some like later point like conjoined so the suffering is like this abstract quality that is then conjoined to the experience of either like this thing that is either later me who is either you know is the later me the same thing as the me i mean what you know we, we normally sort of think in that way but how much sense does that really make and that's one of the arguments that he's going here with that's one of the kind of points he's making here in this argument is you know you, it's not quite right to say that me at a later point like to say that it, they're, they're, it's something different but obviously you can't say it's the same if for no other reason than that you know, every, every reality is momentary. Everything is changing moment by moment. And just because we have a memory of in a certain way, that doesn't actually mean, like, you know, your, your memory is a presently exist. If you have a memory of something, that is a presently existing mental thing that you're doing in your, in your cognition, in your mind. It, it's not like you're actually experiencing whatever it is that you're remembering. What you're actually experiencing is your momentary present mind in the form of this memory of this thing that like is causally connected to something that quote unquote existed in the past but of course as we all know we've been discussing at length here there is no past the past by definition doesn't exist the, the, the point being that like when you reify suffering in this way in the sense of like you, you you know this this thing that i made or someone else made that i'm experiencing that that person that made it is kind of me kind of not like obviously we are we are now like eyeball deep in self-contradictory logical nonsense illogical nonsense i guess you could say um and and so how much more simple how much nicer to just give that whole kind of way of thinking up and and to sort of say like okay well um and this is like i think to me nagarjuna doesn't really go here in this way but it, you know I, i've i've derived great personal benefit from thinking in these terms of like you know, when there's suffering, when there's bad stuff happening, obviously I'm not like, I, I, you know, I get all caught up in the moment all the time too, but there's a real, if, if you can, if you're able to just be like, look, this is a feature of experience. This is like, this is a, you know, a, there, there's a feature of experience that I am experiencing that I, right, that, that there is being experienced as unpleasant, but like that 
so what? You know, you don't have to you don't have to attach more meaning to it than that. You don't have to attach more permanence to it than that. And in fact, like like everything else, because it, it it's just a part of this stream of cause and effect, it is impermanent by nature. It is self-dissolving by nature because everything is. Everything that's conditioned is. Um, yeah, I, I'm talking too much. Who, uh, or Kagi, you have something you want to say? Well, um, yeah, I, everything you, you guys say makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the question that I referenced at the beginning of this uh, hour that I was going to bring up was, um, it's just sort of a general question. And please, guys, don't this. I offer this in the spirit of friendship and discussion. It's not an attack, but I, I do love this text. But um, there, there are a lot of times that I, I do think, um, you know, what difference does it make <laughs> in the sense that, um, for example, I was uh, so this this chapter talks about um, dukkha, which is suffering um, as it relates to clinging to the skandhas um, or khandas in Pali, which are the heaps, the aggregates, um, these these sort of five heaps or clumps of things that um we, we cling to and, and we, we think we we seem to build a self out of it. We, we believe that our self is is made up of these things. I mean, I mean you know, in conventionally, we don't even realize that that we're thinking that. But that's sort of the classical Buddhist analysis of of where this sense of a self comes from. Um, and that seeing I think both the Mahayana and the Theravada would agree that seeing through the through the fact that simply that there is no I located in those aggregates is you know, the path to awakening. And um, just to make sure that I was, um, got, had my ducks in a row as I was looking things through, I know Wikipedia is a terrible source in general, but I, I just w had the page open on skandhas on Wikipedia. And I found a very short and pithy, and as far as I can tell, correct um, summary of how the skandhas are treated in the Mahayana and the Theravada. And it says simply this, in the Theravada tradition, Suffering arises when one identifies with or clings to the aggregates. This suffering is extinguished by relinquishing attachments to the aggregates. I'd say that's accurate. The Mahayana tradition asserts that the nature of all aggregates is intrinsically empty of independent existence. Seems to me also true. But what's important to me, at least, and, I, and I'm wondering if this is just an I just a matter of like mental styles or like past karma that that, you know, makes one way of one way of thinking about it more useful than the other way of thinking. And in fact, I suspect that is the case. Um, but if the, I'm wondering, would you guys say that the point of seeing that they're empty of independent existence, the aggregates in this case, is so that you are no longer clinging to them? Because yes, if, it, yes. Okay. Uh, so, so essentially, the the goal here, and I, this is not a surprise to me, and this is what I I know about Buddhism, about the essential, um, you know, the central friendliness between Theravada and Mahayana with these very you know, very similar goals. Both schools are just trying to stop the clinging to the aggregates, and when we're talking about these particular things. Um, so, why does it matter if they're empty or not? Like I don't care as long as I'm not clinging to them. If they're empty and not, if they're empty and I'm clinging to them, <laughs> then this. that's a problem. I love that. Wait, let me finish. If they're empty, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> if they're if they're empty and I'm clinging to them, then I'm clinging, right? And if they're not empty and I'm not clinging to them, then it doesn't matter if they're empty or not because my clinging is done. And who the fuck cares if they're empty or not? I'm liberal. <laughs> I have something to say, but Ka Ka Kagu, you, you had to take. That's a very Nagarjunian kind of. I like it, but yes, Gar well, Kagu. at least my take on that would be is, is if you realize that they're empty, you'd realize that any quote essence that you'd attribute to them is just your conceptualization. So, in a very real sense of the word, you're actually kind of creating um, samsara with your conceptualizations, and that by realizing Beautiful. they're empty, you're going to. So, be... realizing their emptiness is a is a path to. The, I would even say, well, from Sorry, a Mahayana, so there, there's like two things to say the, the one is that from a kind of Mahayana perspective like in terms of just sort of you know Abhidharma type scholastic approach um, you you actually can strictly speaking stop clinging to your aggregates without realizing that they're empty that's essentially the that's what the 
Mahayana would call the kind of Hinayana approach. Um, the, the problem from the Mahayana perspective would then be that, uh, okay, you stop clinging to your aggregates. That's good. That's actually, that's really good. But there's still work to do because you, you actually haven't, like all you've managed to do is you've eliminated some large or maybe entirely amount of the, um, the what's called the emotional obscurations. Um, primarily, you know, these are the, the three poisons of, of uh, lust and hatred and stupidity or ignorance, um, or the five poisons in a, in a tantric model, adding pride and jealousy. Um, or uh, maybe maybe also some amount of what's called the cognitive obscurations, um, which, which have to do with, you know, our, our minds being um, the, the, what what that kind of ignorance really is, um, not just in a kind of stupidity, kind of not noticing sense, but in, in a not being fully attuned, having full insight into the nature of reality. The, the point is that in order to really finally break the cycle and not only break the cycle, but to be a massive, you know, unfathomable benefit to all sentient beings without limit, which is what attaining Buddhahood is, um, then you have to to accomplish more than just no longer clinging to your aggregates or attaining our hot ship, um, the kind of relatively final goal of, of, you know, the, the, the Hinayana or Theravada from a Mayana perspective. Okay. That's like from, that's like a very, very kind of old fogey type. I mean, old fogey, I mean like third century, um, kind of Abhidharma, uh, Mahayana Abhidharma <laughs> approach. Really old fogey. <laughs> yeah. Like the 1700 year old fogey. Um, the, what I would say from, you know, like a couple thousand years later, uh, is that it, it's not like the question from my perspective is what does it really mean to no longer be clinging to your aggregates by which I mean like you know it's one thing to sort of have maybe even a very deeply rooted sense of you know not identifying with your body so much which is which is good it can be really good to like not not care in a certain way you know in, in, a, in a productive spiritual spiritually productive way you know not not to care so much about Am I hungry in this moment? Am I feeling pain in this moment? Whatever. Um, but but that really having like a deep firsthand non-conceptual insight or wisdom about the emptiness of the aggregates, like that is what it means to not really, to not cling to them in a really profound way. That that like seeing their lack of self-nature, seeing the lack of self-nature of our, of our psychophysical continuum, um, that that is what it means to not cling in the kind of in a, in a in the most profound sense so the the, the that like yeah but don't you get that like from states of jhana not from texts not from <laughs> yeah, yeah i will not from the but, mmk do you know what i mean well let but, me uh, please okay so i have i have two comments on this and i think they might help so one one thing i like to say is that i'm going to go on record as saying that uh dharmas are not empty of self-essence. In fact, emptiness is empty, meaning that it is conventional. <laughs> so emptiness is just kind of the most coherent way for you to think about things. Mm. If you simply don't do anything of that nature, um, then the beautiful, manifest, vivid truth of the isness that is will be before you. And in fact, is before you right now. Yeah. Okay. That is comment one. So now let me give you um, kind of the Zen take on it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> yeah. Beautiful. So there you go. There's so that. I, I want to address this because this is a and this is a great point. Maybe because we're now like five. Ah, okay. Five it took episodes, me a second. Thing. Five episodes deep in the um, in the study of this text, and uh, here's what I what I would say that there we have you know in in the West broadly construed a model of like textual transmission as essentially coding and decoding right that there is some kind of like what is a text or what is a me like yeah what is a text a text is a kind of a signal or a message or you know there's different ways to think about it but the point is that there's some like either it's a proposition Right, like it, 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 you know, or there's a state of affairs. I think this is the Wittgensteinian thing about like a, a you know, 
proposition reflects a state of facts in the world, or I forget how he puts it, but you understand what I'm saying. Like there's a state of, there's a state of facts in the world. Then this gets like put into language somehow, maybe it gets put into thought first. And then from thought, it gets put into language. And then, but the point is that the, the, the language, whether spoken or written, um, transmits this like thought content. So such that the, the, the thought goes from the speaker or the writer, like it gets encoded in language and then decoded from language by the recipient back into the thought of the person who's who's listening or hearing um and in this way there's been like a you know we can like sort of critique it or say like well there's always that stuff like either added or, or lost and yeah, there is but the but the point is that you know in order for um for this to work in order for the way communication works is that there is some kind of like ideal mental content that gets you know put into language and then put back out of language and maybe the language and the thought are very i mean there's obviously obviously there's a lot of disagreement about like this, but, Todorov. Yeah, I mean, it's like logical positive. It's like a lot of things, right? It, it, it this is, but this All is right. like generally how we think about it. Okay, my point where I'm going with this is um, that is not that is not really the model at all, and it's a spe like for for Buddhism, and it's especially not the model here. Um, the 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 model here, it's more like it's not to say that you you can't. It's not to say that. Re just reading the text is sufficient. It's not to say that, um, you know, whatever it is we're discussing or whatever kind of conceptual understanding we, we come to is like in and of itself, you know, enough to, to get you all the way to enlightenment or whatever. That that's It's not that. It's so much as like one of the most interesting features of this text. I think the single most interesting feature of the text is it, it's it's specifically designed to induce this kind of a moment. Like Like if you really, if you study it, if you, if you, contemplate it if you if you reflect on it over and over and you you sort of understand what there's something about it I, I've never I've met people I've met and I've known people for whom it didn't really click I've never met someone for whom it, it clicked even a little bit even for just a minute that that like once it, you have that moment of click you understand like what the click is and 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 that click is not it's not linguistic it's not conceptual it's like he's done something to your mind that you sort of like it's it's a, your whole frame of reference shifts like a half degree to the right or whatever and and but suddenly it's like nothing really can go back to being quite the same way and that is the aspect of it that's what it's all about that is the um the point of this 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 whole thing is this this is what it's all about is inducing this moment of like oh suddenly you know thought and language are no longer really in the picture anymore and i've had this sort of it's experiential and it's the induce it's the inducement of that experience when reading the text that like that's why you should care and no it's not you know that y yeah you can keep reading it and get the moment over and over ideally it's something that needs to be cultivated that's what i was saying before about you know the, the meditation practices it's yes you have this moment of insight of great insight now you sort of get what emptiness means and you understand it as this kind of experiential thing that's wonderful you now like keep doing that Right, it's not enough. You got to just soak have it. in it. Yeah, it's not enough to just have you it. Got once. soak in it. In the Theravada, there's uh, the idea of a stream enterer, which mm -hmm. is like the, the there's like four stages yeah. to getting to nirvana, and a stream enterer is somebody who um, is no longer has ideas about an unchanging self or soul, uh, doesn't believe in the skandhas as being permanent anymore, isn't attached to rites and rituals, doesn't doubt the teachings anymore. Which sounds really good. Like that sounds pretty enlightened. But in that in this teaching, that's like stage one of four. Yeah, like, that's like you, you still have you still have that. I believe seven in the traditional model. You you still have seven re, seven lives left in, uh, once you've entered the stream in that way, right? Or is that like a? Yeah, I I, yeah. I don't know if that's specific to thing, but yes, the idea is that like you are now on that you will definitely achieve enlightenment once you're a stream enterer, but yeah. you still have some a couple rebirths. I think go. there's different. I know there's like there's like people who are in their last birth, people who have one more birth, and I think the stream enter is like you have seven more. Maybe that's the third one, and then the stream enter is just some finite. It's no the number is no longer either infinite or arbitrarily large well it's always not i mean that here we go into math but yeah i mean it's it's like <laughs> one, one well, that, but that gets back into the thing about evola right is like you know there, there are beings for whom like i mean it's an interesting question like you know because samsara is infinite so are there beings that will cycle in it forever it, it's it's not impossible that they that there are and in a kind of typical like the old 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 school mahayana approach it's like yeah well there's different um like uh in a in a sense you could say cast it is different um 
you know, gotras is the Sanskrit word and it means like kind of family almost. And, and yeah, it's, you know, there's, there's people in the, the no, the no gotra gotra of like, yeah, you're not really in this thing. You're just going to, you know, sorry, you're fucked. <laughs> and, um, but then that, that sort of gets revised into like, well, even those people, it, it's not that it's literally never, it's that it's like uncountably infinite or something in a, like a mathematical sense that, that it's so arbitrarily, it's arbitrarily large to the point where like you, you conceptual thought cannot understand how, it, how long it will take for these very, very evil, very, very deluded beings um, to attain enlightenment. But, you know, in principle, they will, or at least they can. Okay, well, that ties a nice bow on it, I think. Agree. Is that, yes. are, are we done for, for now? We can be, if, you, if no one has anything else. I have a, I want to share a little piece of uh, the Blue Cliff record. If everybody's uh... yeah, uh, last on the last episode, I, I encourage people to reach out to me, and I want to thank the people that did. Um, I also gave out my wrong email address. I said it was Aura Taxonomist or something. It's Aura Inspector at gmail.com. So if anybody uh, wasn't on Twitter, didn't feel comfortable reaching on Twitter, you still wanted to reach me on email, you can get me that way. And again, that's just to say hi if you want, ask any questions about the show. Can't promise I'll have excellent answers all the time, but I, I, w I do promise I'll respond and engage you guys. So I'm just going to add that in. Thank, thank you for that, Aura. Thank you for everyone. And uh, I'm sorry again for, uh, I apologize for the earlier um, incident. I hope we didn't lose too many people. Um, but yeah, and uh, for those of you who are asking about donations, uh, we really, really, really appreciate the outreach. I just want to say um, pick, a, pick a, a worthy cause. And, and, and whatever it is you'd like to give to us, give to a, a worthy cause. Okay. So this is from the Blue Cliff Record. This is case uh, 43. I'm going to read the pointer, and I am going to read the case. 10,000 ages abide by the phrase that determines heaven and earth. Even a thousand sages cannot judge the ability to capture tigers and rhinos. Without any further traces of obstruction, the whole being appears everywhere equally. If you want to understand the hammer and tongs of transcendence, you need the forge and bellows of an adept. But say, since ancient times has there ever been such a family style as ours? To test you, I will cite an old case. Look. A monk asked Tungshan, When heat and cold come, how can we avoid them? Tungshan said, Why don't you go to the place where there is no cold or no heat? The monk said, What is the place where there is no cold and no heat? Tungshan shook his head and said, when it's cold, the cold has killed you. And when it's hot, the heat has killed you. We'll see y'all next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs>